Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Roberts. Father's Day was just a couple weeks ago, and to show my appreciation to my dad, I made him read a book with me. It's called Return with Honor, and it's by Captain Scott O'Grady, U.S. Air Force, retired. The reason I chose this story in particular is because his and my father's histories overlap somewhat. They were contemporaries in the Air Force, both did some time in the 555th Fighter Squadron, also known as the Triple Nickel, which was reconstituted from an F-15 to an F-16 squadron in 1994. But where things get interesting is that they both served in Italy during the same NATO operations over Bosnia in the mid-90s. On June 2nd, 1995, O'Grady was flying a patrol in the NATO no-fly zone when an SA-6 Soviet-built surface-to-air missile smacked into his F-16 severing the nose completely from the rest of the fuselage. O'Grady was traveling at 350 knots, or a bit over 400 miles per hour, at 27,000 feet when he was hit. Miraculously, O'Grady survived the explosion, ejected, and began a six-day survival odyssey in hostile Bosnian Serb country. Today I speak with my dad, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Roberts, a former F-15E Strike Eagle pilot, about his view of O'Grady's experience and how it changed things for the whole Air Force, from what they carry in the ejection seat to the survival training every pilot receives to this day. Before we get into the meat of the topic, we started with some regular old father-son plane talk, so either bear with me on that or skip forward to 18 or 20 minutes in. Yeah, we talked for quite a while. And uh, one last thing, I'm actively experimenting to figure out the best remote interview recording software and setup. Last episode, I used Google Meet, and that seemed to do a little better than Zoom this time around. But fear not, this is an evolving podcast, and we'll figure it out eventually. But without further ado, I give you banter with my dad. Would you, did you watch that video that I sent earlier? Oh, I saw the one, um, well, I looked at the one about flying F-4s and then the chick explaining the uh, F-15 cockpit. Yeah. Did you um, watch the whole thing? I, I actually didn't watch the entire thing. I, I actually was just trying to finish it uh, right before you called me. Um, it, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it like DCS seems to get a lot of it right, except I think that DCS <clears throat> was modeling like, maybe an older version, like the RWR, you know, is on the right in the F-15C. And then in the thing that she was shown, there's a much bigger pad. Right. But it's, DCS is just simplified. It's dumbed down, it's simplified. You know, yet 250 switches in the cockpit. And I didn't remember that number, but, um, it's actually more than that when you look at <clears throat> multifunction displays and all the button and menus on it. Yeah. But yeah, she went around the cockpit and you know, the C model and the E model are so similar. It would have been nice to get a little C model time because they're, it, you know, even when I fly DCS or when I listen to her, it, it would have been just an instant adaptation. There's only like the tiniest things that are different. Um, so it would have been fun to get some time in the C model. 
Yeah. Just a little sportier flying airplane. Right. Yeah. Not as like, uh, f- like what fat is the. Yeah. The E model has E-model. chubby cheeks, carries an extra, cheeks. extra five tons of weight. Yeah. I mean, but Hey, that's, that's why it's always at work. Yep. Um, it is always doing the work. <laughs> um, so if you well, want to spend $15,000 on a F4 ride? Well, I was, okay. So what I was doing was I was trying to find like programs that would let you fly currently out of service U.S. military aircraft. And the best, I mean, okay. The L39 is everywhere. Uh, seems like it's pretty easy to get in one of those things. And the L39 is... The L39 is cheap to buy. To you can, a couple hundred grand will get you an L39. <clears throat> yeah, which is awesome. And it's, um, it's But keeping them running is the problem. Well, I'm going to say, um, so I, I found this place. Uh, it looked like it was in California somewhere, although I didn't, I didn't, completely, I didn't identify where it was exactly. But, um, I mean, essentially it was this place that let you uh, – uh, train and kind of get certified like they would basically do pilot training for the l39 with you with like a certified instructor so i thought that was pretty cool um yeah but so, uh yeah yeah like i said i mean i considered a cheap plane to buy at 200 grand but keeping them running <laughs> is millions you mm-hmm. know just fuel and maintenance and everything they're difficult to keep running but there's some yeah. civilian MiG 29s, MiG 21s um, that <clears throat> go take people up for joyrides. Haven't yeah, seen I, that offer for a while, but they they exist. Yeah, I, I just you know a quick little Google search, and I I didn't see anything that was readily accessible. Um, I did, but I did come across you know I was I was trying to figure out if they were like kind of semi recent, like third generation aircraft that you could take up somewhere in the States and the F4 came up as one of those options. You can do the F4 and the A4, I think by that same company. Yeah. It's like yeah. Collings, Collings or something like the that. F4 would Texas. be a trip. You'd, uh, you'd, you'd be wowed. You'd be wowed by the F4. Yeah. I mean, just hanging out at 450 knots and, and, and you can go all the way up to what Mach 2.5. Yeah. If you have enough gas, but yeah, that that would make for a very short flight if you just went for speed. If you go for right. high speed, you can't do anything else. You just go fast and then you immediately go back to land because you're out of gas. It's right. it's, it's a dash speed. It has trouble getting that fast. Um, but you're used to make Su-27 kind of turns and performance and nothing will do that like that simulator does like the dcs does but real world g's and uh speed and noise uh you'd you'd be wowed because it, it's it's visceral and dcs just gives you none of that those yeah the side inputs that you don't have oh any. yeah you know one thing that i noticed i mean you know i i just flew my first cessna 172 last weekend for you know a very short period of time because i'm totally unqualified to actually uh, be pilot in command uh, or, or go solo or anything. Um, uh, but even in that situation, you know, we, we lift off and 
you know, in the bigger planes, like the 737, the thermal activity is pretty minimized. Uh, in a little tiny 172, uh, you feel you everything. Every, you feel every ripple. Yep. And, and so that was <laughs> the other thing that, you know, the Sims don't really seem to incorporate. I mean, maybe there's a setting in X-Plane or DCS that I'm, I'm just missing that's like, you know, simulate thermal activity. But, you know, that, so, that was kind of a little a funny thing. Yeah, so and then those, you dip, you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, those high camber wings on the Cessna are, are called, um, uh, what, uh, what was I going to say? Um, low wing loading, very low wing loading on how much lift you get in each spot as opposed to the F4, which is high wing loading. So the F4 just cut through all the turbulence and smoothed out the ride. It's, we, I considered it a Cadillac ride when, you know, could cut the chop, but the 172, you feel every little chop. You really do. And, and you know, and then the, <laughs> the other thing just, cause I, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Um, you know, you dip the nose at all. Like, I mean, we weren't, we were probably going, I don't know, 100, 120 knots. And, um, you know, I was making a turn. My nose dipped as I was turning, or sorry, my nose, my nose was going too high rather when I was turning. And uh, my instructor was like, oh, you know what, you, you want to probably bring the nose down a little bit. And so then I kind of jerked forward a bit on the yoke and then the, the nose tilted down. And then you know, I felt some, some negative G force and like, that just like freaked me out. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, that's just something that, that DCS and these others just, they, I mean, there's no, I, I, I'm starting to grasp what you mean when you're just like, well, there's just a lot that's kind of missing. And I don't know how they would ever really simulate that accurately. You know, the, the G forces without you having some kind of, um, some kind of suit on or <laughs> I don't know. You'd, it'd be pretty expensive. I feel like to come up with some contraption to simulate G forces for DCS. Uh, yeah, it's, you'd have to be in a centrifuge. Right. No. So that's the machine that they need to build for Sims or something where, you know, the centrifuge, um, uh, basically moves when you, when you pull a G in the, so that's, in game. so in my G force training to learn how to pull nine G's, which you do in a centrifuge and you've got, you're on camera and you got an instructor watching your every move and talking to you while you're doing it. There is a joystick in the centrifuge and it does react to your pull. So mm. it, it accelerates the machine when you pull on it and, and gives you G and, it, and when you stop pulling it, it, uh, goes back down and it's but that machine you know is kind of unbelievably expensive that they have um it has to have these enormous electric motors to spin it up instantly because you need instant response right anyway, only the military could buy that <laughs> yeah and so yeah, I'm okay not springing for one of those in the meantime, and just actually getting a real pilot pilot's license and uh, feeling the feeling the forces that way. You know, there's a as you go through your pilot training, there's the pilot training is just such an entry level training, and there's so many more things you can do. I mean, this if you're gonna be a private pilot, you really should have an instrument rating just for safety. 
Um, <clears throat> there's just too many times, especially in foggy San Francisco, where you just need to be able to punch through clouds and you want to do it legally and you, you want to do it safely. You want to know what you're doing. But, um, but beyond that, there's aerobatics. You know, you've got all these acrobatic airplanes that you could go up and pull G's and do loops and do spins. That's, you know, you can get a lot of, a lot of uh, fighter kind of similarities when you start doing the aerobatics that some of these airplanes can do. Yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be curious. I haven't really looked up the tolerances for the 172 or anything like that, but uh, I imagine it, that, that one's probably not too sporty. It's but, about plus three, um, minus one. Okay. Yep. Might be three and a half, but it's something like three, three and a half. It's not much. Yeah. So um, apparently, uh, you know, I was talking to my instructor, you know, we've really bonded and we just, we actually have been texting a ton because we have all of these uh, overlapping interests like backpacking and uh, mountaineering kind of stuff. And, um, and then he also was obviously Air Force. Um, You know, he flew primarily uh, cargo. Um, and, uh, but then did this, you know, really cool kind of liaison, uh, work with the, uh, Indian air force. And I got to fly the, I believe it was called the Kieran, uh, which was their, um, trainer jet. Uh, so that sounded pretty cool. He's a United pilot now. Um, but, uh, anyhow, uh, he sent me this video where he was in a T6 for his Finney flight and, um, and uh, they ended up doing this. They ended up purposely stalling, entering like a four-turn spin and oh, recovering. Yeah. Uh, and that looked like poop my pants, uh, kind of nerve-wracking when I saw that. <laughs> I hope, hope I never have to get into that kind of situation. Yeah, so the, uh, the T6 is designed for intentional spins, and so is the T37. So the T6 replaced... T37, which I taught in, as you know, so I've got 1100 hours of teaching in the T37 and we would intentionally spin that all the time. I mean, that was standard student syllabus. We had to do a whole bunch of spins. And uh, so the really good one is the negative G inverted spin. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, no, thank you right now, at least at this point. Oh, it's a trip. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how much experience you have. A negative G inverted spin gets your gyros tumbling in your head, man. It's yeah. It's so I'm gonna. I what I've resolved to do is I, you know, I, you know me, I, I, um, I can't help myself buying uh, hardware attachments for these VR games, and um, so you know, I, I figured it would be good uh, to kind of supplement my real life training with like virtual reality, um, Cessna training. And I, I sprung for a, a real yoke and I actually picked up some rudder, rudder pedals as well, which I figure oh, wow. will double for, for DCS. And, um, yeah, I mean, it set me back a little bit, but, uh, I, I think it's going to be, uh, definitely one of the things that I do to, to purposely enter like a, in VR, like a spin, do spin recoveries, kind of practice like that kind of stuff, just to sort of approximate the feeling to it. Although I know it's probably, you know, 
different in real life, but yeah, you can um, approximate the control inputs. You can practice it, but you'll never get the feeling until you do it. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. I don't remember if the 172 does is qualified for intentional spins. I think it is. I think it's going to be part of your training. I just can't remember what I did in my basic pilot training, but I think we spun. Yeah, I. I want to say my instructor was saying that uh, we definitely stall, uh, but oh, yeah. spins oh. are not required. Okay. Yeah. So stalls are a lot. You do a lot of stalls and stall recovery. They're very mild, very gentle maneuvers in the in the 172. You know, you you feel the buffet. You you pull back some more. You get into a deep stall. You drop the nose a little bit and the buffet goes away and you're in recovery almost right. instantly. They're very, they're very predictable. It's easy, but you, you really want to know those feeling that feeling or what it feels like to get into the light buffet, the heavy buffet, because when you're close to the ground, that's, that's lethal because you don't have room to recover. So hugely, hugely important part of the training is the stall and recovery training. Yeah. So I'm, I, I can't say I'm looking forward to that part, but, uh, it's smooth. You know, it's easy. I mean, yeah. you'll, you'll get used to it. There's really very little to the stall and stall recovery. That's good to know. I, I, in my, you know, you're not <clears throat> pulling G's it's, it's all at one G basically. It's, it's just, it, it's a little weird to feel the plane shaking the plane gets, yeah. it gets shaking when it gets into a deep stall. Um, but that's all intentional. It's telling you, you know, loud and clear, Hey, something's wrong. Fix me. You right. Know, the stall buffeting is, is actually a design feature. You want that because it tells right. you something's wrong. Well, hey, I, uh, questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was, I was just about to try to transition us gracefully over to the, yeah. the theme of the day. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, we obviously both read, uh, return with honor. And, you know, one of the first things I was thinking about, you know, was you and Scott Grady actually, sorry, Scott O'Grady, uh, actually passed through the same squadron, the triple nickel. Did you not? We did, but yeah. very different form. Uh, the triple nickel was an F 15 E squadron at Luke air force base, Arizona. When I went through it, and then it, um, because of historic reasons and Air Force decisions, they actually um, took the name away from the from the F-15E training squadron and gave it to the F-16 uh, squadron at Aviano Air Base, Italy. But uh, so, and that happened while I was in the squadron. I was in the squadron one day. I was wearing. A triple nickel patch and the next day I was wearing a 550th fighter squadron patch. It was weird to have your squadron name just taken away from you. Yeah and the triple nickel is obviously the 555th and uh, do, you, do you think they reassigned it to the F-16 squadron for any particular reason? Was it just because they were... Um, well, I, think, like, I think they wanted to give it to operational squadron the triple nickel had a a storied combat past um i think it you know it, it just had more kills than just about any other squadron and i think they wanted it to go to an operational squadron 
that, that was combat oriented because we were uh, a training squadron uh, at the time. And I think just there was a motivation for historic reasons to keep that squadron as a front lines combat squadron. Right. The trip, uh, keep the triple nickel name going. And so this guy, he, you know, Scott O'Grady, you know, the, this, he talks a lot about the culture of F-16 pilots. Uh, are, you know, you recall kind of at the beginning of the book before he even gets into when he was over Bosnia, he was talking a lot about the culture of the F-16 pilots and how he, you know, he kind of fell in with that crowd. You know, he was, he was talking about how he deliberately put the F-15C in second place on his, uh, on his uh, preference sheet uh, after pilot training or during pilot training, rather. Actually, um, actually, he put it in first place, if I recall the book correctly. And then the F-15C wasn't available, and he actually got his second choice, the F-16. Between putting, writing down his choices and when he actually got his assignment, he said he changed his mind and wished he had put the F-16 first and wanted the F-16. And, and his luck worked out. He got, he got what he wanted. But anyway, it was, that was a strange part of the story. Oh, I guess I completely had that backwards. Um, but uh, I was going to ask, <laughs> had you faced that same decision graduating from pilot training and, and, you know, there was the opportunity to go to the 15C versus the 16, what do you think you would have done uh, knowing what you know now kind of in his shoes? Well, my preference sheet, had the F-16 first, then the F-15C. Wow. And why, why was that? Um, the uh, the multi-role mission of the F-16 appealed to me, and uh, its maneuverability appealed to me. Um, the single engine was actually a bit of a detractor, but it um, it seemed like it would be a good aircraft. I, mean, I ended up in the F-4, as you know, but uh, that was my third choice um coming out of pilot training so he got his second choice which is great i mean anything in your top three you're doing pretty well right then then you list um everything in the inventory so you might list 10 or 12 aircraft and uh i mean i listed all the fighters first but then then you have to list you list the cargo planes and the bombers you list everything in sequence so they they have a long list to pick from yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny. I, I actually, I guess I would have thought that you would have gone the F-15C route uh, just because, you know, it, I, I mean, like I said at the time it was the, you know, the primo air to air air superiority fighter at the time. And so, uh, yeah, but that's I'm not interesting. Sure it's a perfect way to order things. The F-15C was uh, very appealing as well. It was, it was a coin toss really, but um, the F-16 multi-role mission, it is pretty good. I mean, that's the mission I ended up with and F-15E was air to air, air to ground. You're doing everything, all imaginable missions. Close, so the A-10 does close air support only. That's only it does. But the F-15E also does close air support along with everything else. It's, it's so many different missions, it's actually really hard to keep up with them all. But um, that, for me, kept it really interesting. I really liked, in the end, when I 
was able to look back and see what I did. I was really happy to do the multi-role mission. And it's, it is, you know, that 15E uh, and this 16 um, are the high demand aircraft. That's what everybody wants in theater uh, for all the action in the last, you know, 20 years, the air to air. Uh, it's been since the first Gulf War in 91, since the F-15Cs have really had much action. Um, right. Well, actually, yeah, there was actually in the Bosnia-Herzegovina conflict, the F-15Cs had some action there as well. But but minimal is, is kind of what I Yeah, just uh, a little bit. The, the guys hauling iron, as they say, keep really busy. So the F-16 hauls a lot of iron as well. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about him actually getting shot down. So he got hit by an SA-6, and it right. basically separated the nose from the rest of the aircraft. Did, did he just get incredibly lucky? Like, my understanding is that the SA-6 kind of disperses tons of shrapnel into the blast area. Like, did they teach you anything about the average kind of survivability of a direct hit by a SAM? No, that... When you get to that level of detail, there's nobody can predict the outcome. Getting hit by a missile and uh, surviving, I mean, it happened. There's a lot of Vietnam stories about people getting hit, a missile going through a wing, whatever, um, you know, a lot of missing parts on the airplane and still being able to eject. But, uh, but his story was pretty radical for sure, that, uh, that he was able to detach from the rear of the aircraft and be in a survivable cockpit and ejection seat situation. That was a crazy stroke of luck. And, and all the bad luck that happened, all the horrible things that happened, that was a, a point where just by luck, he survived that particular moment in time. Right. Like if you had to stack rank the levels of uncertainty at each stage of that just nightmare of a time, like that was probably the, the number one thing is like, yeah. That was unbelievable. I can't, yeah, that it worked out that way. So, well, and we hadn't yet moved to Italy in uh, 1995, which is when I believe it was. And, uh, but where were you when Scott Grady, stop, sorry, I keep saying Scott Grady, Scott O'Grady got shot down. And what do you remember about that time? Well, that was in June of 95, and we were all living in Alaska, at, and I was flying out of Elmendorf Air Force Base at the time, and uh, oh, it was huge news. I mean, it's it, we talked about it extensively in the squadron. Um, you know, we had a down pilot behind enemy lines, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of, you know, scuttlebutt about the whole thing. Nobody had heard from him, and we weren't getting a lot of news because um, we were really getting just the you know what was published uh, to what was available to the public. Um, but you know, we we pretty much figured he was a goner that he had died in the in the in the hit. We got the news that it happened, but uh, after he was recovered for a long time, for months, maybe years, his stories came up in, uh, in different training classes of life support. Life support uh, manage, handles a lot of your training
for all of your equipment that you wear, plus the survival training. We, we did um, annual refresher courses and his experience and his use of the equipment came up kind of virtually every time I went through training after that. But for that first year or so, it was talked about extensively. Right. It was a, it was a big conversation. And sort of speaking of the conversations that were going on during that time or, you know, after he got shot down, um, when you did move to the NATO installation in Vicenza to help coordinate, you know, first the no-fly zone and then later uh, operations during the Kosovo conflict, did you notice any change about the way people operated in the wake of uh, Scott O'Grady's uh, events? Uh, well, actually, all of my experience in the Vicenza uh, Command Operations Center, that was all post-O'Grady. So I yeah. first went there in 97. So that was two years after his incident. So it was it was definitely fresh on people's mind. And, um, you know, but things worked for O'Grady. The recovery system of having people trained with the, uh, the Sea Stallion helicopters, the Harriers, the F-18s, the whole force that went in to get him, all of that worked. So the system was in place and we, you know, everything would have gone pretty much the same if it happened again, because that, the, uh, the one problem he had that was fixed was his personal radio, survival radio. Um, he basically hated that and, and that generated, he got so much attention because of all the problems he had with knobs falling off and batteries dying and, and uh, things that they upgraded that radio dramatically, uh, just much better range on it, battery life, um, communication systems. It can, you know, it can data burst a signal. There's just, it was massively improved after that. Right. And what did the Air Force teach you about evasion and survival and broad strokes as a pilot? Like, what are the key um, components? Well, <laughs> um, the book actually covered it. He, he went through and, and did a lot of what everyone's trained to do. Um, you know, seek cover as quick as you can, move only at, you know, hunker down, get hide, um, get all of, you know, your, your face, your skin and your eyes are real flashpoints for people. Humans' eyes draw to those. So you want your face down. You want to get away, be looking away from everybody instead of at them and, uh, and then move at night and, uh, and, and do pretty much what he did in the, uh, in the book, follow a lot of the training that, that everybody has, uh, in survival course. So there's a, every pilot that graduates from pilot training sometime shortly after graduation, it kind of has to fit into your training. Cause you go, you do a lot of training, but you go to a water survival course and you go to a land survival course and the land survival course is where they do all this training for escape and evasion. Right. And so did you notice any changes between like the events that, you know, he had to go through. Um, so w when you were being, you're, you were going through these trainings, he got shot down. 
you know, and then he, he basically had the perfect after action report for uh, everyone in life support, as you were saying, um, and uh, the Air Force in general. And uh, so what I, what I was curious about is like, did you notice a change in uh, the stuff that you would go to the ground with? Because I mean, yes. I know that you had, you know, you had a Beretta nine millimeter, maybe a little bit of food, maybe a little bit of water, but I, I wasn't sure how that might have been affected after those events. There, there were several changes, but the radio was the big one. We got all, all new radios as part of that. Um, most of it was the same. Um, uh, we, I think we carried more food after that incident. Um, you know, they were just granola bars, but we had, we had more. We had, we had water packets. Um, we, we had uh, a few things um, in addition, but you know, each region actually sets up their survival kits differently. Alaska was built for the Arctic environment, and we had a 50 below zero sleeping bag jammed into our seat kit um, that we, you know, supposedly could survive a winter night in Alaska in the sleeping bag. It was vacuum packed, and it was going to take forever to inflate. But other than that, it, uh, it was a very good sleeping bag. We had other protections. We had a little snow shovel built into that. But that was unique to the Alaska theater. Um, operating the European theater when I was operating there, we we had far less of the winter gear and more supplies for food and water. Yeah. Um, one thing about the Arctic is water is plentiful. You, can, you got <laughs> typically snow, you can melt, you got something. Anyway, we um, in Alaska, Arctic training was also involved, but it's it's but yeah, the seat kits did evolve. Everything evolved with his experience. That's good. It's good that, uh, you know, there was some learning there. Definitely. And did you, did you ever practice ejection yourself? Like, were you actually ever sort of fired up? Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah. uh, in pilot training, you, you do a lot of, um, different simulations. You, uh, your parachute landing fall. So you, you learn the beginning and the end. We spent more time learning the landing and you're jumping off little, little steps and then bigger steps into gravel, pea gravel, and learning the fall. And then you go up in harnesses and they drop you from a swinging harness uh, onto the pea gravel and you have to fall correctly. Eventually you get towed behind a Jeep in a big field and a parachute and you get up to 500 feet, you cut loose and you do the landing and you have to learn the landing. So they spent a lot of time kind of post separation of the seat you you get that experience but 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 the ejection itself there was one little bit of training we did this all only took a couple of seconds but you sit down in the boom bucket and the boom bucket uh -oh. is sitting on rails and you sit there and it's like an ejection seat you have to put your head back sit up straight beat knees together and uh and you you get in the ejection position, pull the handle, and it with it releases compressed air and shoots you up this rail to give you that force of ejection. And then once it goes up, it catches and brings you down slowly. Um, but uh, wow. the boom bucket, you know, we got that experience, but that that took up a few seconds of our training time. Uh, but it was but it was valuable training. 
Yeah. I mean, so it, if, if even in like in the boom bucket, it, it, was it simulated such that, I mean, I know you have to basically have, or I, at least I, I understood from the book is like, you kind of basically have to have like your spine aligned and like, you know, there, there's these compressive forces that are like so strong. Yeah. If you had something kind of awry or out of place, it could really hurt you or, you know, and oh, things yeah. like that. No, is, I learned that lesson in the boom bucket. I thought my head was all the way on the back head headrest and it wasn't quite there and instantly my my chin was in my chest uh, for that moment of acceleration but the boom bucket only i mean it only accelerates for a fraction of a second and right. uh, for that fraction of a second my my chin went down and i was like <laughs> okay that's not how it's supposed to work <laughs> so but i only get the one shot at doing that i didn't get another turn to practice and get it right. But I, I learned my lesson. You really force your head back against the headrest so that you can keep your neck aligned. As if right. that's only a fraction off that headrest with all those G's, your head's gonna be in your lap. How many G's do you think the seat oh, actually puts on you? I don't remember what the number was, but it's gotta be in the 20 or 30 G range. Um, but it's, but it's for fractions of a second. I mean, right. if you jump off a stair step, you're going to hit a lot of G's for, a, you know, this millisecond. Your your body can absorb that. Sustained G's feel very different on the body. Um, but yeah, it's a really high G event for just a, you know, a few milliseconds, and then it mellows out. But those are, this the seat is rocket propelled. And when they fire off, um, you know, things happen really fast uh, for just a few milliseconds. You're accelerating crazy fast. Yeah. So what were, uh, you know, any of your other impressions of, of his book, the, of Return with Honor? Um, oh, well, you know, I think, you know yeah. the whole book, I mean, it was dramatic. I mean, the whole, you can't help but put yourself in the protagonist's position. <laughs> and be him and try and you sort of live through that and go, Oh, Oh my goodness. I'm glad that's not me right now. Um, so there's a lot of that. I mean, I'm, I'm just very thankful that it, I didn't go through that. I never ejected, never experienced it. And I didn't miss anything. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I did, but, uh, yeah, just five and a half days of escaping and invading and thinking you're going to be caught any, any moment. Uh, the stress of that is just unimaginable. Uh, and then uh, and he, he did an exceptionally great job of surviving and, and uh, making himself um, available for rescue by communicating his position and using the appropriate codes that you learn. Because um, if you don't no, you don't remember all your search and rescue codes. They're not going to pick you up. They're not going to send in the troops. Uh, if, mm -hmm. And they change every day and you have to remember uh, um, all the changes and what you're using, what system you're using for communication for secure. So, so they know it's you. So there was a lot to do that uh, I was thinking, wow, it's been a long time since I briefed all that, but it's, there's a lot to remember. Yeah. 
Was there, I mean, after the ejection is, itself, I mean, was there a particular point where, you know, that struck you as, I mean, as uh, ex- extremely dangerous or um, kind of crazy that he got through it? Well, the, the, the landing, you know, people for miles around saw the parachute, the landing, and the immediate, uh, you know, shelter that he, he, you know, he planned while he was in the parachute coming down. He knew about where he was going to land. And he saw um, a grove of trees that he was going to work his way to. And that was a critical step to uh, get away from the parachute get away from the landing spot and find cover quickly. And uh, that was, for him, by far the most dangerous moment. And it is for virtually anybody. Very, very few stories about people landing and being able to survive that first uh, and, and not get picked up immediately. I mean, that is, uh, because the parachute's pretty visible to a lot of people and uh, attracts a lot of attention. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you're, you know, it's it sounded like he ejected. I can't remember exactly how high it was, like twenty four thousand feet or something like that. And well, his um, was higher. It was he was had to be close to thirty thousand feet. He said he uh, pulled the parachute at twenty four thousand feet. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's what it was. And uh, and so I mean, when when you're coming down, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you're in free fall in the seat in the aces two, which is the seat model that he had and the one that you had. Um, so you're, you're free. Are you free falling from like 30,000 feet to like 14,000 before that thing automatically parachutes? Yeah. The, the design is exactly that you free fall, but you have a very small drogue chute attached to the seat. Um, small diameter. It, I don't think it's a couple of feet across. Um, and it, it's only used for stabilization. It doesn't really do anything to slow you down, but it stabilizes the fall. Right. And, and so total time from say an ejection of 30,000 feet, you kind of free fall with the drogue chute to 14,000 feet, you deploy your chute, get to the ground. I mean, that, that whole process, I mean, does that give, that gives your, you know, your enemy on the ground. I mean, does that give them a lot of time to react to you? Yeah, it's, um, uh, you could, you could be in that cycle from ejection to free fall to parachute. Uh, that whole cycle could last 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, O'Grady actually said it lasted closer to 25 minutes for him, but he pulled the parachute pretty early at 24,000 feet. But still, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, it's highly variable. But that's a long time for people to spot you and, and you know, and, and he's near a highway. There's, there's, it's a pot, you know, it's a rural area, but there's people around that are watching and they're making a move towards you. Yeah. Ugh. Well, um, we, we basically got through all the, all the questions I had for you. Um, any other final, uh, thoughts on the. Well, yeah. On the just poster? his homecoming. That yeah. was, uh, that was a huge part of the story and his, uh, his reception coming back and and uh the part of it that he he did go into a lot of detail about is when he was down he had the entire u.s military and in fact in the nato military as well there was so many 
people looking for him, working on the recovery, getting him back, and then rejoicing when he got back. The, the story that really kind of touched me was you just know that when you're part of the military that you've got, you know, everybody's behind you. You've got all that reinforcement of support. Military is going to come after you no matter what. If they can identify you and know where you are, they're going to come after you and take the, their risk of life uh, to come after you. Those uh, the rescue that came, uh, when he when they finally did pull him out with the helicopters, they all but died again on the way out, getting shot up. So and so there's the risk that people are willing to take. The the energy and the forces and the assets that are thrown at one person to get back out is just you know part of the story that I. I knew, but you know, he kind of highlighted for me. It's been a long time since I'd thought about that. But you're really part of an amazing organization when you're uh, in the military. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, you 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 made me remember that you know there the, there's kind of that one scene in the book where you know he's uh, he's radioing you know periodically at night, especially when he hears uh, anything that sounds like a jet kind of nearby, and. Um, and he gets found by one of his squadron mates, actually, that just happens to be loitering, you know, kind of uh, like, you know, hitting, basically hitting bingo fuel or like, you know, just enough fuel to return back to, to base just to hang out there and kind of do laps and, and uh, check for him. And, you know, there's that moment when um, I think it's Basher 5-2 is his, uh, his uh, flight uh, or uh that was Scott O'Grady's call sign. That was his flight oh, call that was, sign. Yeah, yeah. That was his flight call sign. And, uh, you know, and then they, they kind of link up over the radio and it's just like this hugely emotional moment because it's like this guy from a squadron, you know, it's like, I found you, man, you know, and it's just that that was, I mean, I can't even imagine being in that situation where you're just like in pure hell, you're in extremely hostile territory and, you know, you hear a familiar Probably like- a Friendly voice. Yeah, yeah, that would be- And, and it's someone you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it just, it does sound like a, like a really, just a really awesome uh, organization, like you said. So, well, uh, dad, thank you again for, for talking with me. I'm, I'm sure I'll have you uh, as a guest again to comment on some other aspect of, uh, you know, of military life or aviation. Um, but uh, yeah, any parting, any parting words? No, that's all I've got. Thank you very much. It was fun in talking to you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you might be listening to it if you're not already. Also, check out my site at nickrroberts.com and subscribe to the newsletter there, which comes out on a monthly basis. It covers technology, product development, aviation, history, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.